So, today is, uh, well, this month is October 2017. It is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Um, That date is marked by the time Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic monk, nailed some protests to the door in the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, he He was protesting indulgences. What's an indulgence? Well, we talked about this last week, but an indulgence was something you could purchase, a piece of paper you could purchase, and uh, it could get you time off from the years you would have to spend in purgatory, or you could get a relative out of purgatory. And Tetzel, the seller of indulgences, said, the moment the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And Luther says, you know, as I read my Bible, <clears throat> I just don't see uh, this, this indulgence thing anywhere. So he objected, protested to this practice of selling indulgences. He thought it was snake oil. Well, quickly, the issue became not indulgences, but authority. Who do you think you are? One little monk in Germany objecting against the Pope, the tradition of the church, the teaching magisterium of the church. And Luther even stood before uh, Charles V, the, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor at his uh, inquisition at Worms. Who do you think you are? So it boiled down to this. Rome said, Scripture and tradition, the tradition of the church, and the magisterium, the pope and the cardinals and the official teaching, are all on equal authority. Luther says, if I don't see it here in Scripture, we're not bound by it. And the church says it's not just scripture, it's scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. So um, one of the issues that came out of the Reformation was the issue of sola scriptura, which means the ultimate authority, the ultimate final authority is scripture alone. Now just logically, and we talked about this last week, Um, You cannot have multiple ultimates. You can't have several ultimates. Ultimate means the final authority. The Supreme Court is the final court. You can't have multiple Supreme Courts. You can only have one ultimate. And Luther argued that Scripture alone is that ultimate. Today, what separates Catholics and Protestants still... Uh, There are many things, but it's still this question of what's the ultimate authority? Is it Scripture alone, or is it Scripture and tradition and the church magisterium? 
Okay? Now, we argued last week from 2 Timothy 3.16 and specifically 17. 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired of God or God breathed. But speaking of scripture, what's, what's it useful for? We're teaching, rebuking, correcting. That the man of God may be complete, equipped, fully equipped for every good work. Scripture is the thing that can fully equip you. And from this verse, we realize that that which is Scripture is sufficient. You don't need other sources of authority. Scripture is sola scriptura. Scripture alone is what you need to be fully equipped. Then we also looked at this verse, Jude 1.3, which speaks of the faith And this is not talking about subjective faith. This is talking about the faith, the content of Christianity that was once for all delivered to the saints. What what that means is the content of Christianity by the end of the apostolic age, the first century, was already delivered. So when some tradition develops 1,500 years later, 2,000 years later, uh, and, and you say, well, this is essential for the faith, and it's nowhere in Scripture, then we have to say, no, it's ruled out by Jude 1, 3. Now, today, I want to focus on a particular issue that always comes up when Protestants and Catholics discuss sola scriptura. So, you need to bring your A game. Are you are you tuned in? Right? Are you are you okay? Give your head a shake. All right, here we go. We're we're gonna we're gonna go kind of deep today. Um, the issue is the canon. You say I didn't know there was a canon involved in this whole thing. Um, isn't there? Did anybody go to Purdue? They have a my my wife's from IU. Uh, Indiana State, and their rival was Purdue. And I guess Purdue has this little cannon they shoot off, and then one of them steals the cannon, or so, I don't know. That's We're not talking about a cannon that you shoot here. Cannon means the list of books that should be included in the Bible. All right? The, the term cannon means measuring stick. So these are the books that have measured up, right? These are the books that are in the Bible. Now, here's what Rome claims. Without an infallible church to define the canon of Scripture, the Protestant concept of sola scriptura falls apart. Okay? Y'all are, y'all are in your sola scriptura thing there? You know that Bible you're reading? Where'd you get it? Oh, we gave it to you, didn't we? we? We identified the books. So without the authority of the church, you solo scripturists wouldn't have your scriptura to be solo with. Right? Now, it is true that in the early ages, there were some books that were questioned. Hebrews, Revelation, Second Peter... Right? Should these be part of 
the Scripture. Now, Protestants say the church is under the sole authority of Scripture, but Rome says it was the infallible church that infallibly identified the infallible books of the canon. Now, some of you might be saying, well, why does this matter? Just give us something practical. We'll go home and try to live. Why does this matter? And isn't it kind of bashing? No, this is, this is not bashing. This is explaining reality. Okay? If they are right that these are the three sources of tradition, you are in rebellion against God and his one true church for even being here. Your soul is in peril. This is, this is not just an academic issue. You need to know this. How do you even know you have the right books in your Bible? Well, the Bible says, who cares what the Bible says? It's the church that gave you that Bible that you're basing all your confidence on, and you've rejected that church. Okay, you can go home now. So so you see the stakes involved here? Now, what I want to do is give you four responses to, to this claim that without an infallible church to define the canon of Scripture, the Protestant concept of sola scriptura falls apart. Okay? Four answers to this. All right? Answer number one. You ready? Here we go. No infallible body was used to determine the Old Testament canon that Jesus used. So why is one required for the New Testament canon? In other words, let's be consistent here. What is true of the Old Testament is true of the New Testament. How could a Jew living in the year, say, 20 A.D., when he went into the synagogue and heard the scriptures read, how could he know that they had the right scriptures? And I want you to see that Jesus does hold the people of his day accountable for knowing the scriptures and properly interpreting the scriptures. You know, they're always trying to trap him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees who were kind of the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in a future day of resurrection. So they said, hey, Jesus, we have a question for you. And they give him this hypothetical. They say, you know, there was a woman, and she married this guy, and he died. And the law says that her brother is supposed to marry her and have children in his name. So she marries the brother, and he dies. So the next brother marries her, and he dies. And this happens seven times. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection that you talk about? Now, my first piece of advice is don't marry that woman, okay? 
Um, But here's what Jesus said about their hypothetical. He says, in... Uh, so they're, they're actually saying to him, here's the question, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her as a wife, right? Whose wife will she be? Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He goes on to quote the scripture and show them how they're mis understanding it, that God is the God of the living, and there's no marriage in the next age. Okay? But notice, the assumption here is he expects them to have properly interpreted the scriptures. And they don't come back and say, well, what scriptures? We don't even know what the scriptures are. Who defined it? No. It was agreed upon that they had the proper books, the Jews had the proper books of the Old Testament. Okay? And there was no infallible counsel that pronounced, well, this one's in and this one's out. How did they know? Well, here's my answer. An inspired book, an inspired book that God has breathed out, can't help but be recognized by the community of faith. An inspired book can't help but be recognized as it was during the time of Jesus. I'm not giving a hypothetical. This is reality. This is historical. They knew what books God had inspired without an infallible counsel. Okay? Let me give you a second answer. God used the early church to recognize the inspired books, but that doesn't require us to postulate the need for an infallible church. Okay? Let me, let me put it this way. Our ultimate confidence that we have the right books is centered on the power and the promises of God, not on an infallible church. Okay? What, what promises? Well, let me just give you one. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This promise states that God is able to get Scripture to man, Make sure man recognizes that it's scripture and preserve it because his purposes can't be thwarted. Now, one way he could have done this would have been to say, I designate this group of Jewish scholars infallible and they will pronounce what books of the canon are inspired. He didn't choose to do it that way. He chose far more ordinary means. He used ordinary people. Let me give you a a similar example that deals with recognizing not which books are inspired, but with recognizing who the Messiah is. Because not everybody recognized him. But if you remember in John chapter 1, John the Baptist has baptized Jesus, and two 
of John's followers spend the day with Jesus. One of the two was a guy named Andrew. Andrew was the brother of Simon Peter. So here it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Was he right? Yeah. Was he part of some infallible council pronounced? No. Just an ordinary guy, and he recognized the Messiah. What's that tell you? God can use ordinary people to recognize truth. Later on, Philip goes to Nathaniel. This is still John chapter 1. And says, I think we found the Christ. Nathaniel said to him, to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's kind of mocking Nazareth because Jesus is from Nazareth. And it's like saying, you know, can anything good come from Batavia? Can anything good come from Alburn? Right? Philip said to him, come see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay, so we're in separate locations, but I know just a few minutes ago, right before Philip called you, you were sitting under a fig tree. And, and uh, many people believe that's a metaphor for uh, be him being a scholar reading scripture. They would sit under fig trees. Whether that happened or not, we don't know. But Jesus knew a few minutes ago he was sitting under a fig tree. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Did he get it right? Yeah. Was he part of an infallible council? No. Okay. Um, third example Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For, because, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We've seen the miracles. You're you're from God. Was he part of an infallible, he probably wasn't even saved at this point. Because he needed to be born again. right. Uh, All that to say, God could use a supernatural, infallible counsel to select, to to point out the true Messiah and to point out the inspired books of the Bible, or he could use just ordinary people. Now, what might have been some of the criteria that the early church used, the community of faith used, to recognize the books of the New Testament? canon. Now, we don't have some piece of paper that says, well, you know, we met on the following day and we used the following criteria to come up with the books of the canon. But looking back, we can speculate, and uh, uh, many people believe these were the criteria. I call it the triple A's, the triple A of canon selection. One would be, was the book apostolic? What, now, what does that mean? Was it written either by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? So Matthew was an apostle. John was an apostle. Paul was an apostle. Okay? Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was Paul's right-hand man, traveling companion. So he wrote Luke and Acts. 
Okay. James was, loosely speaking, an apostle, but the brother of Jesus. Jude was the brother of Jesus. So was it associated with an apostle? Right. Second um, criteria, did the book in question align with books that were, not, that were never questioned? Okay. So, you know, we don't question Paul. What about this book of Revelation? It seems strange and mysterious and so forth. Um, but nothing is out of line with what is in the unquestionable books. Okay? And then the third criteria would be, was it accepted, circulated widely and accepted amongst the early churches? All right? So this is, in all probability, these are the three criteria that were used. Not an infallible counsel. Okay, now, let me give you another thing you might not know. The Roman Catholic Church didn't officially define the books of the canon until the Council of Trent in 1546. Okay. If an infallible church is necessary to define the canon, how did the church survive 1,500 years without one? The church has existed three times longer without an infallible council pronouncing the books of the canon than with one. Now, somebody might object, what about the canon, the lists of books in the canon, that was defined in the earlier council of Hippo and Carthage. So these were earlier councils, and uh, Augustine was at these councils. And the books, the, the, the correct books, 27 books of the New Testament, are found in the lists of the canon at these councils. Now, we'll talk about the Old Testament in just a second. The, the Old Testament is, is a different issue, okay? Here's, here's the problem with pointing to Hippo and Carthage. First of all, those were local councils. For, for a council to be binding over the entire year, uh, uh, church, it had to be an uh, ecumenical council or a universal council. So this, these are, are not just local councils. But, now here's what a lot of people don't know. Some of the material included in the canon listed, the Old, Test, the Old Testament canon listed in these early councils is changed during the Council of Trent's listing of the Old Testament books of the council. Okay? So now we need to introduce you to something that may blow your mind. The Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible, if you compare the table of contents, the 27 New Testament books are identical. We totally agree on the 27 New Testament books. But the Old Testament canon is different. Okay? We'll talk about those books... It's called the Apocrypha, but the books listed in the early councils, not all of them, but just a, a, a handful of them, are different than what's listed at Trent. 
So now, if we were just talking about they generally agree, that's fine. But we're talking about infallibility here. You can't say, well, they got it pretty much right. And then we changed it. Oh, by the way, we're infallible. Right? So um, James White, who's an apologist, a Protestant apologist, writes this. The New Catholic Encyclopedia acknowledges these differences and says that Trent, quote, definitively removed it from the canon. It, meaning the material found in the Septuagint version of First Esdras. Now, don't, don't worry about those words, right? The problem is seen when we recognize that Carthage's canon, which included material not found in Trent, was included in papal letters and decrees, including those of Innocent I, Galatius, and Hormizdas. How could Trent infallibly declare to be non-canonical what popes a thousand years earlier had accepted? Okay, So you can't point to earlier councils and say you need an infallible council to determine what's in Scripture only to change the canon a thousand years later. Now, if you say, okay, you win, but Trent infallibly defined the canon. So the church survived 1,500 years. The Jews survived without an infallible uh, council, and the church has survived 1,500 years without an infallible council. It's pretty weak basis to say your church is infallible okay now let's get into the fourth issue trent included apocryphal books you know what's that all about well the apocrypha is a set of books that was written between what we call the intertestamental period About 400 B.C. is when the last Hebrew prophet wrote. So there's about a 400-year period of silence where there were no, no inspired books written. But there were some books written and read during that time. We just don't see them as Scripture. So the Protestant church rejects the books of the Apocrypha as being inspired But at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church officially declared some of the apocryphal books to be inspired books that belong in the canon. So this is point four. Let me give you four points under point four. Okay? If you were to look at the table of contents of a Catholic Bible. This is the Old Testament table of contents. It would look like this, and it would be virtually identical to ours, except for seven books. The book of Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Book of Wisdom, Book of Syriac, or Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, and the book of Barak. Okay? So they have seven more books. 
why do Protestants reject those books and why do Catholics accept them? Let me give you five reasons. Actually, not, not four. Five reasons to reject these books. Number one, these books are not in the Hebrew Bible, but they were included in the Greek Septuagint. You say, what's all that all, all about? Well, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, all right? a little bit of Aramaic, but primarily Hebrew. Then, after the, the Old Testament uh, books were written, during that intertestamental period, uh, Greeks, the, the Greeks took over the world, and the kind of universal language became Greek. So, a group of Hebrew scholars translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. It means the 70. And uh, there's some mythology about it. it was 70 scholars who translated it in 70 days. Don't worry about that. But there's a Hebrew, the original, and a Greek translation. The Hebrew Bible, which is, was read from in the synagogues of Jesus' day, did not have the books of the Apocrypha. The Greek translation the Septuagint, did contain those books. So you see the, conversion, the, the confusion here? Like, you have different versions. You've got your NIV and your ESV and your NASB and your New King Jimmy and your Holman. And, um, now, all the books agree, but what if some of them had differing, differing books? There'd be some confusion as to which ones really should be Included, okay? But here's what Paul writes in Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what benefit, of, what benefit of circumcision? What advantage is it being Jewish? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. God entrusted his writings to the Jewish people. I'm going with the Hebrew canon, not the Greek Septuagint. Okay? Argument number one, the Bible Jesus read was the Hebrew Bible. And when he walked into a synagogue, the Bible that was available, that he accepted, was the Hebrew canon. Okay? Number two, there are over 260 quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and not one of them is from the Apocrypha. There it is. There's the argument. If, if the Apocrypha is Scripture, why wouldn't the New Testament quote it once? Now, somebody's bound to ask the question, so is every book in the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament? No, not every book in the Old Testament is quoted in the New. But the Old Testament canon as a unit was not in question. All right, so you don't, you don't need a quote from every book. It was all, the whole thing was already accepted by the Jews. The issue here is if, uh, if we're going to add additional books, why wouldn't one of them be quoted from in the New Testament. Okay? Now, let me show you something interesting. Number three, Jesus' words in Luke 11.51. He says, From the blood of Abel 
to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So all the blood of the Old Testament will be charged against this generation. Now, he quotes Abel. Now, everybody knows that's the first martyr in the Bible, right? Who killed Abel? Cain. Okay. It's interesting that he says from Abel to Zechariah. Now, why did he say Zechariah? Oh, because it's A to Z. No, that you were talking Hebrew here. Different, different language. Okay. All right. Especially when you realize that the chronologically the last martyr to die in the Old Testament scripture is a guy named Uriah found in Jeremiah 26. Okay? Zechariah though is the last martyr in the book of 2nd Chronicles. So now, you got not to confuse you, but can anybody actually see that? Can you can anybody see the books of the Bible listed? How about in the front row? Can you see those? Okay. So you can see. Can you see them, Debbie? Okay. Scott, can you see them? Bill, can you see the books listed? No. Okay. Oh, you need your eyes checked. Okay. <laughs> so it's about it's about right here that we lose the argument, okay? Oh, I can't even see them. All right. <laughs> Here's the Christian canon of the Old Testament. First book is Genesis. Who's the first martyr in Genesis? Abel. Your last book is Malachi. Right? So from Abel to Zechariah makes no sense, does it? Unless you realize that in the, the uh, Jewish canon, same books are, are there, but they're in a different order. Guess what the last book is in the Jewish canon? Second Chronicles. Who's the last guy killed in 2 Chronicles? Zechariah. Jesus, it's, it would be like us saying something like, from Genesis to Revelation, you know, Jesus is saying from Abel to Zechariah, from the first book of the canon to the last book of the canon, the blood will come upon you. You follow that? Okay. He doesn't list anybody who was martyred during that intertestamental period when the apocryphal books were written. There were people who died, but he doesn't mention them. Jesus' quoting of these two guys shows his understanding of the limits of the canon. Okay, Number four, there's a lack of unanimity in the early church about the apocryphal books. Now, because they were in the Greek version, the Septuagint, there were some people who held to them. Augustine thought they should be included. Okay? He's a big guy. He's a good guy. Right? But Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, he's the one who fought for the Trinity. Right? And Jerome, now Jerome translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, and it became the official... Bible of the Roman Church, he included the Apocrypha, but he said, these are not inspired books. He included them in the translation, but he did not believe they were inspired. 
Pope Gregory the Great, they all rejected the Apocrypha, as did Josephus. Josephus was uh, a first-century Jewish historian. He said the apocryphal books were not seen as Scripture. So there's, there's a lack of unanimity uh, over these books. But now, let me give you the final reason um, to be suspicious of the Apocrypha. You ready? Trent's theological agenda in including the Apocrypha. Okay, Remember, Trent is the council that condemned the Protestant view of salvation and of Scripture. They also defined officially the canon of the Old Testament, and they included the Apocryphal books. Remember, church tradition developed a place called purgatory, right? You don't die and go to heaven. You, go, you die and go to purgatory where you are um, being made perfect, right? That's how indulgences came about. You're, you're not buying people out of hell. You're buying people out of purgatory. So you can buy an indulgence and you can pray for dead people. A Protestant says, where in the world in Scripture, where, show me one verse where you get this. Wouldn't it be great if they could find a verse somewhere in the Apocrypha that supported this? Boom. Second Maccabees 12. So this is about one of the Maccabees, the Jewish leader. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. He's believing that there's going to be a future resurrection of some soldiers who had died, so he takes up an offering. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sins. So when you're having a debate with your Roman Catholic friend and they pray for the dead and have masses said for the dead, and you say, where is that in Scripture? You open your Bible and go, there's nothing in there. They open their Bible, they got, they've got Second Maccabees. But we don't even agree on the books of the Old Testament and I think I've given you some pretty good reasons to reject these books. So, what have we learned? Quick summary here. No infallible body was used to determine the Old Testament canon. Why is one required for the New Testament canon? Number two, God did use the early church to recognize the inspired books, but that doesn't require us to postulate the need for an infallible church. Number three, the Roman Catholic Church didn't officially define, didn't officially define, 
define the books of the canon until the Council of Trent in 1546. And for Trent included the apocryphal books. Now, I said earlier, ultimately, our confidence that we have the right books is not based in some infallible counsel. It's based on God. And God's intention is to give us his scripture, to have us recognize his scripture, and to place our confidence in his scripture. Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Hasn't been lost. Okay. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Let's thank him for his word. Okay. Lord, I know we've covered some fairly complex issues, but bottom line, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you saw fit to speak to man through the written word. You used men to write it. You've given us the ability to recognize it. You've promised to preserve it. Now, Lord, give us a hunger for it, a desire to open it, to read it, to study it, to submit to it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.